This is a CBC podcast. May I ask? May I ask all colleagues? Excuse me, colleagues, colleagues, colleagues. Temperatures are running hot. Temperatures are running hot today. That is the sound of some turbulence on Wednesday during question period. One longtime political watcher said that MPs' behavior was just sad. But the new speaker is hoping to change it. We've had uh, good days and bad days since I've taken the chair. Today was one of the tougher days. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we're going to get an up-close and personal look at Greg Fergus's fight for better behaviour in politics. We'll also dig into one of the key points of contention in that question period, and in the Federation right now, the carbon tax carve-out with New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs. We'll talk about the Canada pension plan too, and why he says Alberta might have reason to go its own way. And we'll have the first broadcast interview with the Federal Addictions Minister, An average of 21 people are dying in this country every day from overdoses. We'll ask her whether her government is doing enough. But first, the carbon tax pushback. The House is now in session. Things have gotten pretty bumpy for the federal government since they announced last week they are pausing the carbon tax on home heating oil. Plenty of premiers say... Everyone should be getting a break, regardless of how they heat their home. Saskatchewan Scott Moe is even threatening to stop collecting the tax on home heating altogether. Well, some in New Brunswick will benefit from this pause. The vast majority won't. So Premier Blaine Higgs is among those pushing for change. We spoke to him Friday afternoon. Premier, welcome to the House. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you on the program. Listen, You tried to get this question of carbon tax breaks onto the agenda at the finance minister's meeting on Friday, but the prime minister has already said there will be no more carve-outs, there will be no more exemptions. What can you really hope to accomplish? Well, I think you're seeing a a spread of this, uh, the issue around the carbon tax and really the validity around what what it's actually achieved versus what the hype was or what it was intended to achieve. And the the break on, on heating oil here is welcome. I won't deny that. I mean, most of our homes here in New Brunswick are heated with electric heat, but it's a welcome break. But I, I certainly um, agree with my colleagues across the country that it, it shouldn't be based on one area, one province or a group of provinces. It should be universal. And and I think it then begs the question about the, the carbon tax entirely. But let's start with the, the heat rebate. But the, the government has already said no way, no how. No more carve outs, no exemptions. So how can you hope to change the policy? Well, uh, so in the finance meeting today, um, a number of promises, including ours, the finance minister was making this this pitch that um, this has to be a fairness issue across the country, and it, it isn't fair to, to carve out one area. We have a confederation meeting this uh, weekend um, in Halifax, and we will be doing the same thing as premiers, looking at uh, the uh, common front. We're also appealing to our, the opposition parties in our uh, respective provinces because it's uh, we're on the same page here, really. And it was, uh, in fact, not only our urging, but, but certainly the federal MPs in um, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia that were pushing the, the federal government on both sides. So let me ask you, Premier, uh, Saskatchewan Scott Moe says his province is going to stop collecting the carbon tax if he doesn't get a break. Would you consider doing the same, going that far? Well, certainly if I have the, the legal ability to do that, yes, I would. 
I, I don't know. I have I've asked the question internally. Are we able to do that that in that sense? Because I think that the people are realizing that all of a sudden the polls trumped the the philosophy of of the carbon or the climate change that the federal government has been pushing forward. And you know we're not seeing changes in consumption, but we are seeing dramatic changes in people's ability to afford to work and live in in our country. So I just want to be crystal clear. You're saying you you are seeking a legal opinion from your civil servants, your, the team around you, to find out whether or not you can do the same thing and just stop. That's correct. Okay. If we think about the bigger picture here, Premier, the goal of the carbon tax, the stated goal, is to drive down emissions and fight climate change. If you want to pause it or even dismantle it altogether, doesn't it need to be replaced with something? It does indeed, Catherine. And I would say rethink it altogether. Because here we are in in a country that produces 1.5% of world emissions. And if you went through that provincially, like we, we are a fraction of, of that, like 1.8 of the 1.5, so a fraction of the Canadian emissions. And the situation that we have here is we're living in our own bubble, saying we're going to cause an affordability, a living complex. We're going to make it difficult for everyone in Canada because we're trying to drive Canadian emissions down to, to zero within the 2035 and through the 2050. But then you look worldwide and you say, wow, our energy could be offsetting Russian energy going to Europe. Our gas here and there could be offsetting coal plants that are being built around the world. China is building 80 to 100 coal plants a year. They have 1,100 operating, and that's just China. But we have some of the highest per capita emissions in the world, Premier. You're saying, you're saying the answer is the rest of the world, that Canadians just shouldn't be worrying about their own emissions? What does per capita actually mean? What does it do for climate change? That's the point. I mean, we can have our own, you know, internal kind of philosophy, but it doesn't change anything. It will not have an impact. But our energy supply, particularly gas, can have a huge impact worldwide. Okay. There's another important issue that I want to talk to you about. Uh, Alberta is contemplating leaving, as you know, the Canada Pension Plan. The Prime Minister has warned that that would expose Canadians counting on the CPP to greater volatility. Do you agree that Alberta is creating a problem for many Canadians? I agree uh, that the federal policies have created a problem for Alberta which has transformed into a problem that uh, Alberta is now looking at ways to deal with it. So we have said, and I've said from the beginning, that, you know, I'm a province that um, we're trying to become more sustainable on our own, but we are a recipient of, of equalization payments. And where's that money coming from? I've said it for years. I mean, it's coming from Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan. It's coming from provinces with a, an energy-rich capability. So here we have a province whose federal policies have impacted negatively, but we still want their money. So I don't believe that Premier Smith is is looking to impact uh, Canadians, and it will have a serious impact on, on Canadians and CPP and the pension plan. So we need to find a way to help Alberta offset what, what they're looking at, because what she's pointing out is that we are funding Canada at the same time that Canadian policies are detrimental to, to Alberta. So I don't think that Alberta's walking away from Canada. I think Canada has walked away from Alberta. You obviously have some sympathy for her. When she says we've got this report that entitles us, uh, according to the calculations, to 53% of the Canada Pension Plan's assets. You agree with that number? Uh, no, I can't say that I, I agree or disagree because I don't know the calculation that surrounds that. But you accept that it could be more than half of the assets of the Canada Pension Plan? Well, I, I can't say that, Catherine. I, I don't know. But there are pension actuaries that can validate that one way or the other. 
but I, I would say that they've been major contributors to the Canadian pension, the CPP, and, and we, we need to recognize that. And I think we need to find a way to, um, to allow Alberta to utilize the resources it has that we've all benefited from across this country. Is there a risk that you're making it easier for Albertans to leave when you say she's got a point? No, it's the truth. So how, how can you convince them to stay then, Premier, if you believe that it could have a serious impact on Canadians? By changing the policies of the federal government and allowing Alberta to utilize the resources they have for the benefit of all of us. Wouldn't we all be like, want to provide Canadian energy to Europe right now and offset Russian supplies going into Europe and, and fueling the uh, Ukrainian and Russia war? But those are, as you say, federal policies, Premier. Is there anything you can do to try to keep Alberta as part of the CPP? Yeah, I, I'm doing it right here by suggesting that we actually listen to the situation that, that the federal policies that put Alberta in that would cause them even to think about this sort of, of uh, action. Okay. Premier Blaine Higgs, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Catherine. Have a good day. You too. Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland was asked on Friday about the possibility of New Brunswick following Saskatchewan's lead and not collecting the carbon tax on home heating. Here's what she had to say. It is entirely appropriate and I think an expectation shared by all Canadians that everyone in the country should follow the law. That's our expectation and it's our job for to ensure that the law is enforced. It will be. Got a lot of books on the shelf here. What are we looking at? So you're looking at here the uh, transcripts of the debates in the House of Commons. Do you, does anyone ever actually get those out and consult them? You know, people uh, look at them for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think guests come in here, they actually want to see the uh, transcripts. And then somebody's always looking for the book that you pull off the shelf and the secret door opens. <laughs> Which one so, is that? Yeah, Could well, you show us? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> there might not be a bigger keener for Hansard than Greg Fergus. He's the newly elected Speaker of the House of Commons. And back when he was a teenager, he fell in love with the official record of parliamentary debates. So back in, uh, in, in 83, 80, 45, that's when I would uh, get Hansard delivered to me every day at home. So each day... And you would just read the yeah, debates? Yeah, you would. And uh, it was amazing the, the personality of the people you would see or develop and understand, at least in my mind's eye. One of them was Joe Clark, who is extraordinarily funny on paper. He is a real wit. Uh, so when I was a kid, I used to read his stuff and just almost burst out laughing. So the takeaway is if there is some young person listening to this right now who hopes to be speaker one day, uh, spend the next four decades or so studying <laughs> answered. <laughs> Not certain if I would recommend that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, who knows? Who knows what little uh, effects and what the effect of what people say has on people. It certainly was really impactful for me as a teenager. So, uh, you know, I think we should all conduct ourselves in a way that would uh, perhaps encourage someone else uh, years down the line to be inspired by what they read or heard or saw in the House of Commons to decide to seek a life serving Canadians. I went to see Fergus on Wednesday. We met in his office in West Block. It's full of bookcases reaching all the way up to the ceiling, stuffed with copies of Hansard. He says he wants to inspire MPs to conduct themselves better in the House of Commons, and there's fresh evidence it's needed. One poll out this week found that those asked were most likely to describe the exchange of ideas amongst politicians as posturing, useless, 
and dishonest. But as we found out on the day we visited him, change is an uphill battle. I started by asking Fergus how he would explain his role. It's like being a ref in a game. I mean, politics is not a game, but for to make the analogy is that for any sport to go well, it has to be done within the framework of the rules that have been set out. And then people within that explore excellence. So my job is just to make sure that people are conducting themselves in a way that respects the rules of the game and then let them do what they need to do to, to win the game. He tried to make a point about those rules two weeks ago, but when the speaker rose to read his speech about decorum, he quickly ran into resistance. The Conservatives called him out, saying it was time for Fergus to get moving and start question period, that Fergus could make a speech another time. There was a lot of back and forth, but eventually Fergus did lay out his vision, where all members work to turn down the loud heckling and excessive disruptions. I decided to stand for Speaker because in the eight years that I've been a member, and prior to that as a keen follower of parliamentary proceedings, I have noticed a deterioration in the collective decorum in this place. It is important to note that this deterioration was not inevitable. It is not a natural outgrowth of the advent of social media. We can choose to conduct ourselves differently. If you're the ref, what was the message that the ref was trying to send that day? Play fair. You got some real pushback, ref. How did you feel about that? <laughs> well, that, that, that's fine, and, and that makes sense. I mean, two things. I think I got real pushback before people had a chance to hear it. Once they heard it, I think in the last two weeks uh, since I've made the statement, I think you've seen a real noticeable improvement in the decorum in the House. And members are actually referring to it. Uh, they, they take it out and they try to remind me of, of what I'd said to making sure that if they felt that there were things which were offside, that, that I'm making sure that I'm, I, I understand their perspective on catching it. Okay, I've got some more questions. So yeah, maybe we'll, we can walk, we'll walk and talk. And talk. What I would like to ask you is, I mean, you, you are making this call for more decorum. You know, I've talked to MPs about this. Mm-hmm. You were the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. Mm-hmm. You are someone who has filibustered yep. more than once in his life. Yep. Does that interfere with your ability to make the argument that, you know, we should, we should calm things down, things should perhaps not be so partisan, so rough around the edges? Uh, yeah, but even when I was doing what every MP does and pushing for their team when they're in that kind of position um, as being a member of a team, uh, again, I think, uh, by and large, I conducted myself in a way that was considered fair, uh, inclusive, trying to bring in as many people as possible to bring around a consensus on the Hill. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually really proud of the work that I did at, at, at committee. Now, if you're looking for a, a, a perfect uh, person who had planned on being speaker, I'm not the guy. You know, I've, I've made my mistakes, as every single one of us have made. But again, on balance, I think if you were to take a look at it, I think the record speaks for itself as being a fair player and, and someone who does uh, work well with, uh, well with his colleagues. And now I'm in a different role. And this is a role which is very much like being just an MP, um, because when you're an MP, you're not partisan with your constituents. You have to deal with everyone uh, and work with all your constituents and act as an ombudsman. This is sort of like the role that you can do here as as a speaker. How much trickier does it get to turn down the temperature when we are de facto 
in the lead up, and maybe it's two years away, but in the lead up to an election, a time when tensions are, are, are likely to just rise and rise? That's a really good question. I, I, I think this is a reason why I need to start off very quickly on this issue in terms of setting out what the expectations are. are. And frankly, if it's up to me alone, it won't succeed. It has to be up to members. And members have to act, and most members have to act in a way and conduct themselves in a way that they really want to. When I was speaking to them on one-on-one conversations, either in the house or by telephone, it was near unanimous, top issue, regardless of political party. So I'm trying to create an environment where no one has to be afraid to be the first mover. Sure, I want to, I want to act better, but I'm not certain if everybody else wants to act better at the same time. So if I can create that environment that they don't feel alone, well, then I think I give them that opportunity, afford them that opportunity to conduct themselves in a much better way. And if we take on that habit now well before the next election, I think Canadians will be the real winners. The Speaker's Day is busy. Speeches, meetings, preparations for proceedings in the House. On Wednesday, he had a group of students stop by his office for Take Your Kids to Work Day. Even the grade 9s were tuned in to the way politicians behave. Um, I just want to know how you, like, control, like, in the House of Commons, like, how, like, all the members of parliaments and, like, just say during the debate or when a bill is being addressed. That's a really good question. And this story was just told to me. I don't know if it was my predecessor, uh, Anthony Rhoda, or if it was another speaker who had met the Indian speaker, speaker of the Indian parliament. And there they have this huge parliament. And so the Canadian speaker asked the Indian speaker, said, how do you control that number of MPs? And you know what the, speaker, the Indian speaker said? He said, I don't. I can only control myself. And that's a really smart approach. So how do I control? I can't. I need the cooperation of members to make that happen. But are the members on side? We asked a few as they made their way into West Block for question period. Charlie Angus of the NDP. We are talking decorum in the House of Commons. Greg Fergus is trying to bring a stronger spirit of decorum up there. Uh, Is that needed? I think we have to be realistic about what Parliament is. The idea that we're all supposed to be well-behaved and super polite, sometimes there's a falsity to that. Uh, These are serious issues. People should be passionate. People should be willing to challenge. The problem is is when we get into mob behavior, intimidation, shouting people down. That's really gone way over the line. Ben Lobb, can I ask you, decorum in the House of Commons, how do you think it's going in there these days? Decorum? Yeah. Uh, So-so. Mr. Biddle, we're talking decorum in the House of Commons. I speak to people who come and watch. I speak to uh, school groups that have uh, come in, and it uh, at times is disgraceful that we would accept we wouldn't accept this in any other workplace. And um, if we want good people to run, we don't, if it's a toxic workplace, we're going to have challenges uh, getting those people to come and uh, actually run for us. Then it was time for the main event. Oral questions, questions oral. Question period stretched on longer than an hour. Speaker Fergus had to push for decorum multiple times. Colleagues. Sit down. Hello. At one point, Fergus tried to call for order. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev was standing, ready to ask his next question. May I ask 
May I ask all Other MPs called out to the Conservative leader, telling him to sit while the Speaker was standing. Disorder took over as many MPs stood up in protest, holding up question period. Fergus had to wrestle back control. Temperatures are running hot today. If I could ask all members, please, to sit down. May I ask all members to respectfully sit down, please? All members. May I ask all members to respectfully sit down until I recognize them. How did that question period go? Well, we've had uh, good days and bad days since I've taken the chair. Today was one of the tougher days. Why? What made it tough? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but you know, there are going to be some days where uh, decorum, where members are contributing very uh, actively to maintaining proper decorum. There are going to be some other days where, for whatever reasons, that, that might not work as well. Has this been harder than you thought it would be? It's as hard as I thought it would be. Matter of fact, in many respects, I found it a little easier than I thought it would be. After the statement which I made two weeks ago, I would say that most days has been very, very positive. Uh, Today is a tougher day. A tougher day? How much power do you have to change that, to to, to get a day like this on track? Uh, The best power that one could have is for members to feel free to conduct themselves accordingly. Uh, So the best power doesn't flow from me. The best power flows from members. And so if I can create the environment in which they feel um, that they can conduct themselves in a way that's befitting of the role that they hold, then that's that's the best approach to take. But that sort of suggests that there are some pretty strong limits on what you can do. There are formal things which I can do uh, and certainly can do that. But, you know, I think it's always best to try to convince people that it's in their best interest to voluntarily conduct themselves in a way that is befitting of their role. When you do that, um, you have greater buy-in. It shouldn't be up to me to be the, the arbiter of all things and force them into a role. They have to want to be a part of it. How's the common speaker, Greg Fergus? Thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Coming up on the House podcast, Elon Musk says artificial intelligence is one of the biggest threats facing humanity. But BlackBerry founder Jim Balsillie is warning tech giants may have an ulterior motive. Is this a legitimate concern, these existential risks, or is it a tactic of a, of a bird feigning a broken wing to take you away from the nest of near-term regulation? Jim Balsillie on the real tech threats. That's coming up in about 10 minutes or so. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to The House from CBC Radio. A new episode drops every Saturday. If you want to let us know what you think about AI or about decorum in Parliament or anything you hear on The House, send us an email. Thehouse at cbc.ca. Today we've got an important addition to our coverage of the toxic drug crisis. Already we've looked at life on the front lines in our special episode from Thunder Bay, Ontario. We've discussed questions around the practice of safer supply and talked about Alberta's plan to go all in on recovery, even contemplating a law that could send people to treatment involuntarily. This is a national crisis. More than 38,000 people have died since 2016. To talk about what more the Canadian government can do, Yara Sachs is the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. We really wanted to understand the federal perspective, so we talked for about 20 minutes. 
Here are the highlights of that conversation. I'd like to start by talking about safer supply, which is obviously the source of some debate. This week, you acknowledged that there have been concerns with safer supply programs and diversion. So when prescription drugs that are meant for people struggling with addiction end up on the street. Do you believe safer supply programs are having unintended consequences? So I would say, first of all, any medication that's prescribed or drugs on the street, they're all illegal. If, if drugs from a prescribed program are, are diverted to be purchased elsewhere, diversion is just pure and simply illegal. And we know that. And, and I have deep concern. As a mother, I have deep concerns about that. But also as many, many Canadians across the country have a concern about where prescribed medications may or may not be going. But healthcare professionals who are engaged in this work also know the rules around managing controlled substances for their patients, and we all have a commitment to that. That being said, I did take the concerns very, very seriously and have tasked the department to have a deeper dive to look at what are the diversion potentials that that may be happening. The articles that we've seen, a lot of them are quite anecdotal, and you know, we're driven by evidence, and we want to make sure that we have a clear picture going forward. And yet you use the word weather. I mean, we heard uh, recently on the show from Victoria's uh, Dr. Mark Mallett, who has talked about evidence. Yes, anecdotal. We also know, though, that you received a letter from a group of addictions doctors warning about this. To your mind, it is still a question of whether or not it's happening and not the scale? So um, I am aware of the letter by the physicians. And I will say, first and foremost, they themselves are addiction specialists and are experts in this in this area, which is why we, we weigh in with all the experts who are committed to this work, because those who work in the area of, of addressing addiction and, and the tragedies that come with it, frankly, every single person who's working on it are, are heroes in my book, because... You need such compassion and patience to be able to see the person in front of you who is struggling with substance use. But we do want to make sure that our interventions are supporting the health of those who have come forward to their health practitioners asking for help through a prescribed program. And we want to make sure that it's safe. And this is really a balance between the public health issue and also ensuring public safety. Are you considering changes to safer supply programs? I think at this point in time, uh, we'd like to move beyond the anecdotal evidence, including Dr. Mallet's, which also was anecdotal, as well as those by others that were quoted in Reddit. And I think we need to do the deeper, proper evidence dive in order to make good decisions. So the, the warnings that are coming from people like Dr. Mallet are that this is a problem that is having impacts right now, right? I mean, he is describing teenagers getting these pills who are, are, are you know, falling into addiction essentially as we speak. So how long are you prepared to spend studying this before you figure out whether or not there's a problem going on? Uh, You referenced prescription drugs. There are many, many households in this country that already have prescription drugs that are falling into the hands of teenagers around the country. We know that happens. So to do a sweeping assumption that that includes safer supply, I think at this point, is really not grounded in evidence, which is exactly why we are looking specifically at the programs to understand where there may be issues of diversion. And we've been tasked on it now, and and we know that it is a deep concern, and I take it very seriously. The expert panel in British Columbia this week said that the solution they believe is actually more access to these drugs. They are calling for making safe supply available without a prescription outside a medical setting. Would the federal government ever entertain that? Would you sign off on that? 
I would say that this is a discussion that we need to have as part of our new drug strategy. And until I see the data and the evidence in front of me, it's not a decision that I can weigh in on. Okay. So you, you would consider it, but you, you would need data to support it is what you're saying. I think of all of our decisions on how we tackle the toxic drug supply and those who are struggling substance use should be based on evidence and data. So let's talk a little bit more about what's going on. I'd like to focus in on decriminalization uh, and data, actually, exactly what you're talking about. Because in British Columbia, as you know, as of January, it's been legal for adults to have small amounts of illicit drugs, heroin, meth, fentanyl. Uh, The government is supposed to be tracking the progress. What do you know about the effect that decriminalization has had on drug use so far? So although we started in January, the data collection is in its stages. We've, it was part of the conditions of the BCG CRIM sign-off that we ensure that there was a regular system of monitoring controls in place to be able to assess and analyze what's, what is happening with the rollout. And we have an arm's-length evaluation framework under what's known as CRISM, which is the Canadian Research Initiative in Substance Misuse. And we have a monitoring mechanism in place. We are looking at the data there. And we have experts meeting on a regular basis with advisory boards and and our expert panels to ensure that the policy is working. But there's no Um, big takeaways yet, is what you're saying to me? It's a little bit early for that, I would think. Okay. Let's talk about treatment. I want to play you a clip from our program from Thunder Bay. This is Carolyn Carl. Her daughter died from an accidental overdose, and she has been raising thousands of dollars to open a recovery home in Thunder Bay. I've been advocating at every level of government. I've written letters to the editor. I'm out there trying to do what I can, and it does give me a lot of healing. But really, should the moms that have lost their children be the ones that have to start to make the changes? Do what's right to the government. You know, like, I don't care how long it's going to take. People are dying every day. Let's get moving on this. She lives in the overdose capital of the province, one of the worst-hit areas in the country. Why is this work being left to people like her? So, I, first of all, moms like her and moms like myself are probably the loudest and strongest advocates of knowing what's needed. And I had the opportunity to meet with the group at DEC when I was in Thunder Bay, her foundation. And I've also managed to meet with Christine Naylor and Mom Stop the Harm. And... They are the loudest voices and the strongest advocates of what we need to do. And I wish more and more more and more levels of government would, would listen to them the way we do. Uh, the, the truth is that we at the federal level are constantly working with our provincial counterparts to encourage more options, more services, more care to be available for those who are struggling with substance use because we know it's... There's no silver bullet to this, but there's also not one track to, to address this problem. There are, there are so many pieces to the puzzle when we look at complex needs. And it really it, it requires not just the federal government, but provincial governments to get on board. But, so you seem to be saying we're moving. But I mean, we kept hearing in Thunder Bay, there are no places for people to get well. We talked to a paramedic who said in his five years, maybe once or twice, he's been able to get someone a detox bed. And they are dealing with overdose calls daily sometimes. The government has committed over a billion dollars since 2017 to address this crisis. How is it possible when you say that your government is engaged, how is it possible that the government has spent all that money and there is still this enormous need? 
So what I would say is this, is first of all, I'm, I am aware of what's happening in Thunder Bay. Uh, I believe from when my, I had my visit there and we asked about how many detox beds were available for all of Thunder Bay for both alcohol and substance use, it's only 25. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be more. And these are conversations that I've had with my provincial counterparts, including Minister Tobolo for Ontario. And the work needs to be done there, and it has been done there. We recently had the federal provincial territorial meetings in Charlottetown a few weeks ago. And I was pleased that my provincial counterparts have agreed to us meeting now quarterly to really get a handle on this. But so, I I mean, if the question is where are more beds, you're saying the province is holding it up? I think the provinces need to add the lens of urgency that the federal government has. So your message to Carolyn Carl to that paramedic is the provinces need to get on it. There's there's nothing more you can do other than... No, my message to Carol is that we are throwing everything we have at this and we will continue to work with our provincial partners to make sure that not just the programs that we we provide through SUOP, but also including the new bilateral agreements that are coming out, have a strong lens of addressing the issues that their that provinces need to step up and do more. Alberta is taking a different approach to this crisis. It's investing millions of dollars into treatment centers, but not spending money on safer supply. We spoke to Alberta's mental health and addictions minister, Dan Williams, last week. Here's some of what he told us. What is the policy outcome if we don't get people recovery? If we don't try and help people who are in that deadly cycle of addiction, we, we will continue to see more addiction, more pain, more overdoses, more death. The way to break it, inevitably, and it's I, I'm, I don't know any other alternative, it's treatment and recovery. What do you make of Alberta's approach? I would say that I think it's a very limited lens on what really needs to be done to address those who are struggling with substance use and the toxic drug supply. You know, provinces like Alberta are putting a false narrative forward that it's an either-or between harm reduction and treatment. And at the federal level, we don't look at it that way. We look at our four key pillars of prevention, harm reduction, treatment, and and enforcement. And if you can't bring all of those pieces together, then we are really not providing a full continuum of care for those who are struggling and with addiction. And, you know, I go back to to Carol and, and, and the other moms that I've met who actually are are not supporting forced treatment. It's the exact opposite. Their, their, their fear is that a forced treatment model puts people at higher risk of relapse and higher risk of death. They do want more treatment beds. As you know, she's raising tens of thousands of dollars for more treatment beds. And if everybody agrees, even if you don't agree with the Alberta government about all kinds of things, you, you do agree, I believe, that we need more treatment and recovery places. That, that you, you even agree with the Conservatives, uh, Pierre Polyev, about that. And you don't agree with, a lot, with them about a lot on this crisis. Why can't everyone say, well, we agree on this one thing and, and go all in? The only, frankly, the only thing we agree on is that we need to 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 save lives. I think that's the the base level that we do agree on. Aren't treatment beds part of that? Even if you don't agree with the, about the rest of the strategy, treatment beds are only one part of the puzzle. Because if someone isn't ready to go into treatment, if you can't see the individual and and the path that they're on to be ready for that treatment, you are setting them up for relapse and failure. You're not setting them up for success. And we need to have a full suite of tools and a full continuum of care for those who 
are struggling with substance use to make sure that they get that care every step of the way. Okay. In closing, I want to ask you, we look at the numbers. This crisis has gotten remarkably worse since 2016. That's when the public health agency began tracking deaths. That is all the Liberals' time in office. How much responsibility does your government have in the current situation? This government has taken a very courageous, compassionate, and brave approach in addressing of what has been a pervasive and relentless problem that began well before the Liberals came into power. And what I would say is we were willing to take the bold and courageous and necessary moves in the investments to really create a system to ensure that we innovate, that we work with communities, that we support our frontline workers who are dealing this with every single day to make a difference. And what I would say about our government is that we are working as relentlessly as those who are on the streets, helping those who need our help. And I would encourage other members at all levels of government to join us in rolling up our sleeves even more as we move forward to fight back on this. Thank you for your time today, Minister. Thank you. Yara Sachs is the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. We have a situation where there's something that is going to be far smarter than the smartest human. That's tech billionaire Elon Musk at an international summit on artificial intelligence. It's being held at Bletchley Park in England, the place where the codebreakers worked during World War II. Musk described AI as a threat to humanity. You know, we're, we're not stronger or faster than other creatures, but we are more intelligent. And here we are for the first time, really, in human history with something that's going to be far more intelligent than us. Um, so... It's not clear to me we can actually control such a thing, but I think we can aspire to guide it in a direction that's beneficial to humanity. Canada is one of 29 governments to sign the so-called Bletchley Declaration this week. It warns of catastrophic harm to humanity if AI is not controlled. The federal government does have legislation in the works to manage artificial intelligence, and this week the committee studying it heard from one big name in tech who says it's time to throw out the government's plan and start from scratch. Jim Balsilli is the former chair and co-CEO of Research in Motion, now BlackBerry. He's also the founder of the Centre for Digital Rights. Jim Balsilli, welcome to the program. Oh, pleasure to be with you, Catherine. So we're hearing about countries warning of catastrophic harm from AI. You said this week that AI is so central that if we don't get this right, quote, it will be forever toxic. What is the danger that you see coming from this technology? Well, um, I mean, there's there's two things. One is the inherent nature of the technology, and then two, how Canada is dealing with it. Of course, it's a very powerful force, and you have to regulate these technologies to get the benefits of them and not the harm. In a sense, we like a car, but we don't like drunken drivers speeding in front of schools. And, and so we need to regulate to get the benefits and attenuate the harms. And uh, I think it's very dangerous to turn this to some kind of existential discussion when we have numerous extremely consequential harms happening right now, whether it's manipulating for the mental health of children or undermining uh, human autonomy or manipulating and creating polarized uh, political discourse or monopolizing markets to undermine prosperity and equality and and fair innovation. So these harms are happening now and we have to be very, very careful not to be... uh, 
drawn or duped into going to existential possibilities however, that are unquantifiable, both in their, their degree and, and timing, when we have enormous contemporary issues we can address. What is one example of something that you think is happening right now that we should be more concerned about than the threat of AI? Sure. I mean, these firms use surveillance capitalism or surveillance technology to surveil our youth. Then they use algorithms to trigger negative emotions and insecurities and, and manufacture mental health issues to create addiction to their products. So when you see the skyrocketing mental health and suicide in our youth, there's a direct link between that and the artificial intelligence used in their digital environments. People have called this a threat to humanity. Elon Musk said that just this week at that Bletchley Park meeting. You're saying that's not the way we should be talking about this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, calling these more intelligent than humans is a very impoverished view of humanity because there are a lot of aspects of morality and emotion and implicit aspects of wisdom and intelligence that are incomputable. But in a sense, calling a fast car that moves faster than a human being superior, you may be superior in one narrow sense, but not in the completeness that makes us human. In a sense, if if, if machines are human, then humans are machines, which I don't subscribe to that. Second of all, I do, whatever the future possibility, and, and this is not a radical view on my part, there are contemporary issues. And is this a legitimate concern, these existential risks, or is it a tactic of a, of a bird feigning a broken wing to take you away from the nest of near-term regulation? So you're saying that tech companies are trying to distract from other issues with some of these concerns? They are masters at gaslighting. What then do you think of this suggestion that there be a pause on developing this technology, which some people have called for? Again, I think that's a form of gaslighting in that that's an impossibility. You're asking whether you look for global coordination or you look for existential risks or you call for a pause those in developing these things know that there's no chance of those happening. So it takes away from the very near-term opportunities to use existing laws to protect the very societies from the harms that are happening every day, including today. So let's talk about what the Canadian government is doing then to try to rein this in. Part of Bill C-27 is the part that deals with artificial intelligence. You said when it comes to that part, scrap it. Right. What, what, what is the biggest mistake you think the government is making right now? Well, I think the mistake the government made uh, was that they dropped the bill absent any consultation. The metaphor I used is they put on their shoes before their socks. And now they're trying to put their socks on without taking off their shoes. And that means that you consult with people first. You try to have a discourse on these technologies. You begin to develop a, a white papers or position papers. And then you reduce that to proposed legislation. Ada was just sprung on people. So Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne says that when it comes to the legislation as a whole, so we should say for folks, part of it deals with privacy and part of it deals with artificial intelligence. But when it comes to the legislation as a whole, the government has already done some 300 meetings with business, academics and others. And, you know, they are hearing a lot of voices who are saying time is of the essence as this technology evolves. I think that would leave some people wondering, do we really have time to do more 
consulting on this? Well, we, we do need to do, we do have to work with urgency, but why is this all happening so late? And why was consultation begun in the summertime some year after the bill was tabled without any prior consultation? So I agree, there's urgency and the government themselves admit they're, they're late at getting to these issues, but you don't address being late by beginning at the end. You, can't, you, you have to go through a consultation phase. You have to work through what is the approaches that democratically, Canadians democratically want here. And th- those quote-unquote consultations, they weren't transparent. We don't know who they were. We don't know when they were. They were after the bill was tabled. And they, quite frankly, they make my case. They make your case. Yeah, they were not transparent and they were after the fact. The legislation's been tabled. And so what are you consulting on? Okay. I do want to talk about another issue that I know is a very pressing one for you and one that certainly has been very much in the news uh, involving technology. Questions around foreign interference. You warned years ago that Canada needed to get tougher around China's involvement in technology and universities. So I'm really curious what your reaction was last month when you saw all the members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partners, that includes Canada, coming together to publicly warn about the threat of the Chinese government stealing tech information and trade secrets? Well, I think we have to have a a proper conversation in this country how to deal with the um, nature of intangible assets, which we have not had for the last 40 years of the knowledge-based economy, which is why our prosperity and productivity is last placed in the OECD in that era and forecast for the next 40 years. This is why Canadians have trouble making ends meet and we get with that, with these technologies, security vulnerabilities. So, yes, we have not had strategies for this. We, our policies don't even see them as important. And, and thus, of course, we have threats of Chinese espionage. But we have to understand our public policy has been to give away our technologies to China. They don't have to take them. And so we need a proper discussion on how to harness our knowledge-based economy, our data, our research capacities, for the benefit of Canadians, security and economically, and not for foreign interests, be they China or otherwise, because nobody's going to look after Canada but Canadians. Has CSIS ever approached you with concerns about foreign interference? I've had my discussions with uh, uh, public safety officials over time, and they did appreciate my, my very strong comments in 2018 about the inattention on the research side. And it was many years before the government took minimal action. And yet last month and the month before, patents were filed between Huawei and Canadian universities. So even though there's been some guidelines issued, universities are still carry on with their Huawei partnerships as evidenced by the filings. And you know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I do just want to dig down into that question um, because I, I'm not quite sure I was able to tease out an answer there. Have you ever had conversations with security officials in Canada warning you about foreign interference? Yes, and I've warned them. <laughs> I've been saying this for a long time. We we share this concern. Yes. And what what uh, you've been very public about what your concerns are, but I'm curious what kinds of concerns they brought to you. Well, I mean, we these are discussions on what should be done about it. Rather than saying that your your company was perhaps the subject or that you personally were the subject of some sort of no. foreign interference? No. I take great care in these matters. They don't have to tell me that there's issues that need attention. I, I'm very public in, in saying we have to take these very serious. We have to protect our intellectual property. We have to protect our data. We have to protect our organizations. We have to protect ourselves. 
Okay, so when it comes to foreign interference in universities in particular, I know these are these are big multifaceted issues. Can you give me one really important thing you would like to see the government do? Yeah, they're not that big and they're not multifaceted. You you simply have to treat them as valuable. The one thing they can do, which is what all other leading nations do, is they put conditions on publicly funded research grants. The government has been consumed with conversations around foreign interference, or at least a particular kind of it, for months now. Would you say that the Canadian government is taking this issue seriously enough? No, not at all. And what would it look like if they did? They would put conditions on research grants. For one, they would treat our data much more carefully, a la Bill C-27. They would engage with proper experts on security and prosperity to ensure these aspects of Canada are attended to so that we stop being last place in the OECD the last 40 years and forecasted for the next 40 years. Jim Balsilli, thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure, Catherine. Okay, that is it from us today. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.